Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn on. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I'll say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A Trunk. Hey folks, it's Eddie Trunk, and this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, always free. Thank you so much for subscribing, listening, downloading, streaming, however you connect. I appreciate it. Bringing you interviews with some of your favorite musicians and sometimes people behind the scenes as well, as is the case this week on the podcast. Uh, We are joined by this week, Kevin Shirley. One of the things I love doing on my Sirius XM radio show from time to time is dedicating full shows to producers because I find that the producers have insights you don't normally hear from the artists and really unique perspectives and have great stories from behind the scenes. So I've done a bunch of in-depth interviews with legendary producers in my career, and I continue to do that. I've got another one coming up soon that has aired on Sirius XM already with Michael Wagner. I'll try to bring that to you as a podcast somewhere in the next few weeks. But this week, this is Kevin Shirley. Kevin is a guy that's extremely close to the career of Joe Bonamassa and also Iron Maiden. He's produced every Iron Maiden record in the last 22 years and is very much uh, a part of that band and the music that they make. And you're going to hear a lot about that in the interview. We also touch on other parts of Kevin's career, including how Rush really saved him when he became an engineer on their counterparts record and a really fascinating story. He's originally from South Africa. The interview you're hearing was done when he was in Australia, where I believe he still is. And we cover a lot of different things in his career as a producer. So get ready for a great conversation with Kevin Shirley on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. As usual, all the interviews you hear on the podcast originate on my Sirius XM radio show, which is Trunk Nation, heard Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4 Eastern, with nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern, anything you want on the Sirius XM app 
audio, video, and more. So if you're only listening to the podcast and you're in the U.S. or Canada, I urge you to check out The Daily Show on SiriusXM. And if you're not a subscriber, consider coming on board. You're only getting a tiny fraction here on the podcast of what I do on a daily basis on the radio. There's also a sixth radio show on SiriusXM on Hair Nation, terrestrial radio show, and of course this podcast. Social media is at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the website. All my appearances coming up are also on the homepage of my site. I want to thank everybody that I hung out with at 80s in the Sand in Cancun last week. All the artists that I interviewed, if you were listening to Trunk Nation on Sirius XM, you heard those interviews. We had great visits from Cheap Trick, from Tesla, from Living Color. All of that stuff is on the Sirius XM app now. All right, let's get into it right now with producer Kevin Shirley, my guest on this week's podcast. Joining us now from Australia, where he has been living for a while, is Kevin Shirley. Kevin, how are you? Hey, Eddie. How you doing? I'm doing well. Things. Uh, how long have you been over there? Are you there as a byproduct of COVID? Did you get stuck there? Were you in the middle of traveling? Uh, I know you're. I know you've lived there a long time, but uh, I know you basically work from Los Angeles. Are you kind of stranded? No, I'm not stranded. I kind of, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm a lefty. So uh, I didn't really enjoy the previous administration too much. And uh, and so I kind of brought my kids away from there and my family away from there for a while. And then we kind of got stuck with COVID, you know, and they, and we thought we'd waited out here. And, and uh, then... You know, Australia brought travel waivers in, and uh, so I, I haven't traveled for two years now. I mean, I've I have I've never been this static for any time in my life, not since I was, you know, like 10 years old. So it's actually been kind of cool. I've got my studio set up. I've got a big monster 72-channel uh, analog console overlooking the beach, and uh, it's absolutely state-of-the-art now. I've fitted it up with the Atmos systems and all sorts of things. And so I can do anything now. It's been fantastic. And, and, uh, I, I got to admit, I haven't really missed the travel too much, you know, so it's been fun. Yeah. So, well, let's get in before we get into some of the records you've made and some of the artists you've worked with. I always like to start these shows by getting the story on how you arrived at being a producer. And in the many that I've talked to a lot of times, it started out playing in bands, I had uh, Max Norman on for him. It started out doing front of house and he kind of got thrown into it on the first Aussie record. They're always pretty interesting stories. Jack, T- Jack Douglas told me a crazy story about his, his trials and tribulations getting into it, how he landed into being a producer. So for you, I know you grew up in South Africa. Take me through, yeah. uh, you know, how that happened for you. Were you a musician? Where did you learn the craft? How'd you get into it? You know, I wasn't, I was, uh, I grew up in a very conservative environment, and I I played classical music. I played uh, French horn in an orchestra, um, and then I became the conductor of the junior orchestra, which is, I suppose, where the control freak in me started coming out. And then when I finished school, I really didn't know what to do. And I liked playing electric guitar. I discovered Zeppelin late in my life. I mean, the first Zeppelin record I owned was song remains the same so I really you know I I didn't know the Beatles I didn't know the Stones I came to music really late in my life Elton John and Zeppelin were amongst my first discoveries and um 
and I went traveling. I went to, uh, uh, in order to avoid going to the army, you had to go to university and, and study or you, or you were conscripted. And so I went to university and there was nothing I really wanted to do. So I went and studied classical composition at the University of Cape Town. And then that didn't last long, like 18 months. And then I went traveling and I ended up in a Dutch prison for not having a ticket on a train. Stupid and silly story. Anyway, when I came out of there, I flew back home and I remember hearing music in, uh, in the airport. And I thought then and there, you know what I really want to do? I want to make records. That's what I want to do. So I got hold of the studio and, uh, studio in Cape Town, Michael Tully McCulley, and, uh, and there was an, a very uh, excitable uh, gay receptionist who had kind of taken to me, and so he sort of employed me to hang out, and, uh, and that's how I started in the studio business, and, you know, I, was, I did play in bands, but I, I never really enjoyed playing in a band, it was, I'm not a frustrated musician. I wanted to make records. I like sound. Uh, I love sonic. I love great, you know, the sound of great records sometimes to me beats the music in them. Although, you know, there's nothing like a good song, but you give me a Bob Grimm out and mix record any day. And I'll, you know, that's, that's, that's what excites me. So yeah, that's how I came to it. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a super interesting story, but it's just the way it was. Yeah. Well, of course it, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned clear mountain cause I, I don't know Bob, uh, but he's somebody that I hope to be able to do a show with as well, because he's one of my favorites. I had Brian Adams on the show recently and I was talking to Brian about uh, tracking down Bob clear mountain for me because his mix has always just had such a signature, great sound to him. But I'm curious. So, so Kev, you get this job in this studio and you start becoming, you start hanging around the studio how, how did you actually learn? How did you actually, did you just ha pick up and become a sponge and pick up from other people working there? How to actually do it? You know, I was always kind of driven. I went into a bar and there was a guitar, a guitar player playing in the corner. And I just started working at the studio and I, you know, 18 years old or 19 years old. And I went up to the kid and I said, Hey man, do you want to make a record? And he said, yeah, sure. So I went to the studio owner, Sully, and I said, hey, can I make a record with this guy? And he goes, okay, you can use every Tuesday night between 8 and 11. So we said, okay, great. And uh, and then, honestly, I think Robert Plant's Pictures at 11 had just come out. And I remember cycling into the studio every day and listening on headphones to the Robert Plant record. And there's, oh, there's an acoustic guitar on that side. And oh, there's a piano over there. And there's, oh, there's, this is... You know, and then I just sort of started uh, listening to what how records were made and trying to deconstruct them and then trying to reconstruct them. We had an interesting uh, jingle studio that we worked at where we primarily would do one instrument at a time. So it, it, it was just, you know, I got to learn how to overdub and how to make overdubs work with each other and how to make them work sonically and musically with each other. And um, so that's how I started making off records, piecemeal, you know. And then, and then later on, then I had a few, a few you know, the uh, first record that I did came out and, and, and was okay. And then the second record I did with the guy, we had a number one single with. So 
it was it wasn't off to the races, but it was like you know this is what I wanted to do, and there was more money in jingles, but I didn't want I wasn't interested in the money then, and I'm still not now, you know. So it was all about making records, and um, that's what I did. It sounds like it was very trial trial and error. I mean, you just you had the luxury of having a few hours each week to kind of learn on your own in the studio and, and learning the ropes and just kind of messing around until you, you landed on, on something. Uh, did you, this, this artist that you first worked with, the, the kid that you found and brought in, did he go on to have a career at all? Yeah. His name is Robin old and he's still in South Africa. He's made, you know, quite a lot of records. He's sort of a national treasure there now. And, um, and he's continued on in the industry. Uh, it's not a huge industry there, so you probably find him at the local coffee shop every Wednesday evening, you know. But right. he's still playing. Kevin, um, did, did you did you have a mentor in your career? It, most of the producers I've talked to, uh, once they started to get into it, there was one or two people that they learned under or learned from. Uh, maybe people who were staff people or just bigger names that were producers. Was there anybody like that for you in your career? You know. Uh, the, the guy who owned the studio, Tully, was a producer, and he had been since he was in his. He was since he, I think he, he produced his first hit when he was fourteen in South Africa. He built his own studio. He was he is one of those weird genius, geniuses, you know. He still makes microphones to this day. Uh, Joe uses his uh, microphones. Bob Rock uses his microphones. Lots of guys use his microphones, and he hand built every single one of them. So he's one of those kind of guys. And so I watched him work as he as he built up these jingles, you know. And um, uh, and then uh, then I and then Clear Mountain's records were always something for me. I mean, I was always he he's been my he's always been my favorite engineer. So um, you know, I would always listen to his records and try and work out what the hell he was doing. And I you know here I am forty years later still trying to work out what the hell he's doing. <laughs> he's my favorite guy. And actually, to that point, you know, I just I'll tell you. Uh, uh, there was one other guy just while we were on that story I, I moved to Australia in uh, the mid 80s and then I made a record with the band called The Baby Animals which went on to be really pretty big here and uh, um, and I worked with Mike Chapman and um, I I got to I learned from Mike the 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 benefits of capturing the energy of a band in a studio. And he would, you know, he would, he's one of those guys who would put everyone in the room together and make sure there was enough vodka and then have them firing off each other. And there was always just this extra 10 or 15% that you don't get making a record, you know, another way that he would capture. And I absolutely embraced that, you know, that really resonated with me. Yeah, I, I remember that that Baby Animals uh, record did pretty well here. Susie DeMarchi, right? She was the singer. That, yeah, that's right. She's still around. She's, uh, she married Nuno. Yep. actually. Yep. And they had some children because I know I talked to Nuno, and I know he goes back to Australia from time to time to visit his kids there with her. Uh, but I do remember yeah. that record. It was on Imago Records, if I recall, here in the U.S. Yeah, that's correct. And do you know what Imago is? No. It is the it is the it is the status of um, the butterfly immediately after the chrysalis, and Terry Ellis was the the head oh. honcho at chrysalis, and he went on to form Imago, and that's where the name came from. 
That's interesting. I knew there was a connection to chrysalis, but I didn't know that's what it is. Uh, that that's pretty yeah. that's pretty wild. And chrysalis was Chris somebody and Perry Ellis, Chris Ellis. So that's how they got the chrysalis name. Was the baby animals record one of the earliest things that you worked on that had some success? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I had, I had number one records in South Africa, but they weren't you know big, and they didn't really extend beyond the boundaries of South Africa. And uh, and then the baby animals, I had done the demos here, and then they got Chapman in to produce the record, and he listened to the demos and said, well, whoever made the demos, you know, that guy's going to be fine to make the record. So, yeah, that was, and that was, uh, that, was the, that was the first record that did anything, you know. So I didn't make any money from it, but it was the first record that may, had any kind of international success. And for you, I imagine you realized pretty early on that there was only so much you were going to be able to do, especially if you wanted to work with rock bands being based in South Africa, that eventually you'd have to either move to the States or move to another country where there was just more of a scene, I would imagine. What what was that like? What were the next steps from there? Well, you know, you have to imagine. I mean, some, some you know, I, I never imagined being... In, in on any uh, major tier in the business at all, you know, and uh, it it only came about from you know a, a, a relationship breakup that I moved to the states just to get far enough away, and 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 this is a long story, but it's kind of fun. Um, but in any case, I uh, I moved to New York and I went broke and went absolutely stony broke, and I was hitting up everybody. And I sent uh, a CD to Jack Ponty. You know, you, I'm sure you know Jack. Sure. He's in New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey uh, guy. And he'd been in the original uh, incarnation of Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jack said to me, uh, he, he, Jack heard the, the, my, uh, my demo reel. And he said to me, uh, you should send a, a, a disc to Peter Collins. He's just about to make a record with... Uh, a band up in Canada. So I sent the CD up. I literally had to borrow the money to get the CD to, for, the, for the postage. I mean, a flat broke in New York City. And I, uh, I sent Jack Ponty, I sent to Peter Collins a CD, and he said, Hello, caveman. Um, uh, I, you know, why didn't you come and see us in Canada? I'm about to make a record with this band, Rush. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I said, Yeah, I know Rush. I had power windows and a couple of other things. Um, I wasn't a huge uh, a fan, but I did have a couple of records. And so I was, had my uh, three-year-old son in New York, and I managed to find someone to, to babysit him. And, I, and she said to me, listen, I have to go to a wedding tonight. Uh, it was a Friday evening. I have to go to a wedding. So I really need to be out of here by like 5.30. I said, no problem. I'm just going up for a lunch meeting up to Toronto. And they sent me a ticket. And I flew up to Toronto, had a meeting with the guys. It was really nice. Uh and at 3 o'clock, I went to get my, my, my plane back home at Toronto Airport. And the U.S. Customs official said, I don't think so, sir. You have no money. You have no ticket going on anywhere. Uh, you know, you're not a, you have no work permit. Uh, uh, you're not coming back into the country. And so I was stuck in Toronto Airport with a three-year-old son in New York City. And I didn't know what to do, so... I walked back up the corridor in Pearson International Airport, and there was a phone box on the wall. And uh, I called 
the studio where the guys were, and Peter Collins was still there. And I said to him, hey, man, do you want, are, you, are you interested in me making the record? And he said, well, to be honest, you're the first person we've interviewed. We've got a few other people we're going to be interviewing, but, um, you know, we'll probably let you know in about a month. So I said to him, well, I have a bit of a situation. I'm stuck at the, at the border, and they won't let me through to the States. So I'm either going to fly on to Australia from here. I have to get some money. Uh, fly on to Australia from here, or you can, you know, you can decide if you would like me to make the record. <laughs> well, stand by the phone box, and I'll call you back. So, you know, they had little numbers on the phone box, and you could give him the number. And so I actually had to stand in the hallway going down to the uh, departure hall and wait for him to call me back. And 20 minutes later, he called me back and he said, caveman, we've decided to give you a chance. Uh, wow. Yes, so we'll, we'd, like, we'd like you to make the record for us. So I said, well, that's fantastic. But now there's an, one other thing. And it was Friday afternoon, by the way, like 5.30 now. I said, there's one other thing. I said, I'm going to need some, some money. He said, well, how much do you need? I said, well, I don't have anything. I need to, I need a rent an apartment or something and he said uh, alright meet Peggy Chitoni here tomorrow she'll be at this place she was the uh, like the the manager day to day person for Rush right and Peggy met Peggy met me on Saturday morning with a big brown bag full of $5,000 in cash and I managed to rent an apartment and spend the rest of it to get someone to fly my son up to Canada so Wow, what an amazing story. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is you're sitting there waiting for that payphone to ring back. I'm sure you blocked it off so nobody could use it so it wouldn't be busy, you know? Well, that's right, you do. You have to just stand there, you know, just stand there. And, and and you know, and the funny thing is that there was a girl walking by and she had been on my flight up to Canada in the morning. And she said, oh, hi, how are you doing? I saw you on the plane this morning. She was the flight attendant. And I said, well, you know, I've been better. Yeah. It's a bit of a tough situation here. I mean, you know, when you when you got no mojo, you just don't say I'm fine. You just like I, you know, right. I don't know what to say. Things are hard. So she said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll wait for the phone call to come through with you. And she waited, and then uh, they called and I said, I'll give you a chance. And she said, well, you know, you can come and stay at my place tonight if you want. Well, so uh, it was starting to snow in in Toronto. It was like February 2nd or 3rd or something like that. It was just starting to snow, and uh, so she put me up for the night. Uh, she, you know, bedded me down in her living room, and we went to a party that night. I mean, I was, I was in no mood for celebration, but it was just like took my mind off stuff. And, and, uh, and you know, there are these angels in life that just come around and just, just give you a little leg up and... You don't, you don't forget them, I tell you. You don't forget them, and you don't forget people like that. Yeah. And I try to do, you know, I, I definitely, I, I try in my own way to give back, you know, to this industry and to people in doing music as much as I can. So, Well, I want to get into some, and that record, by the way, I'm assuming was Counterparts for Rush that you worked on, right? That's correct. Yeah, we did it up in in 1992 in, in uh in um, studio in the country, what was it called? Uh, uh, Moran Heights Studio, and then some of it in Pepe in Toronto. A very, very significant record for me as a Rush fan because 
Uh, I I loved the band in the 70s and the early 80s, and then they got way too heavy into, and I've talked to the guys about this countless times. For me, they lost too much of Alex, and it got very synthed out for a while in the mid to late 80s. And Counterparts, to me, was the return of Alex Lifes, and I'll never forget hearing the song Stick It Out and that big, loud guitar riff and immediately perking up and saying, they're back. You know, they finally got Alex uh, back in the mix some. And I've talked to Alex about that, and he felt the same way that I did for a long time until that record. So that, for me as a Rush fan, Counterparts is a very pivotal record just because it was the most rock, hard rock-sounding uh, thing they had done in about 10 years up to that point, I think. And, you know, I, I know that I was very uh, instrumental in that. And <laughs> Alex and I had a couple of knockdown dragouts because he would, you know, I, I he had these, uh, I mean, to be honest, I like Paul Reed Smith as a person very much. But, you know, right back then, I had this, you know, this, this attitude about guitars. And, 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 you know, I used to say to him, you've got a fucking guitar that looks like a coffee table plugged into a fridge. It's like, you know, why don't you get a, why don't you get a man's guitar and, uh, you know, and just, just get a Les Paul or a, or, or a Strat and plug it into a Marshall. Just be done with all this nonsense. And, and I remember one time, one time uh, with Alex, uh, we were doing some overdubs and he always wanted to overdub in the control room. And I said, no, you've got to go into the studio. You've got to be near the amp. You gotta get, and I mean, if you can, I, you can, I can't believe the goal. I said you gotta get that resonance of the amp coming through the wood on of the guitar. I said you gotta get all that stuff. Anyway, so he finally went out there, and I think he enjoyed the experience. But it was, I know it was really difficult for him in the beginning. And I remember him doing a solo, saying, you know, can I have more reverb, more delay on the solo when I'm tracking? And I, I just said, and but by the way, Peter Collins would just sit back. And he would just watch all this and watch it unfold. And um, and and I would say, no, I'm not going to give you any reverb. <laughs> and he would say, he'd say, listen, man, I want a little fucking reverb when I play my guitar solo. So I said, no, I'm not giving you reverb. You just you just muddle up the notes and think it sounds fine when there's reverb. I said, concentrate on your playing. And he said, anyway, he was furious. He was mad as a snake. And at the end of that session, he said to me, you and me need to go out. I need to talk to you. So Alex and I went out to uh, like a Four Seasons Hotel or something. And we sat up, you know, until the early hours of the morning. And I think we drank two bottles of scotch. And we sorted ourselves out. And we went home blistering hangover the next day. But we sorted it out. We never had another issue after that. And, uh, and you know, I, and my way, you know, my way went through. I mean, it was the same with, with Getty. I got to the studio, and I have no idea where I had this goal from. But um, uh, Getty had a Galleon Kruger and uh, a Galleon Kruger amplifier and, you know, some other funky slap-based thing that he was playing, you know, and... Uh, um, I said, man, I said to him, your bass sounds like a plucked tenor wire. You know, it's like ding, 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 ding. And so I went into the back of the studio at Marin Heights, and there was an old Ampeg B-15 out the back with a blown speaker. 
so I pulled it out to the back of the of the of the storeroom at the back of Moran Heights Studio, and I brought it in. And I said, "Getty, plug your bass into this." So he plugged his bass in, and the thing was just it had a tear in the speaker cone, so it was all distorted. And he goes, "No, we can't use that." I said, "Man, that will just be brilliant on this record." So wow. he said, "I don't think so." I said, well, "Let's give it a try," and so we recorded the entire. I said, it's going to cut through the mix amazingly like that. So we recorded the entire album with this little Ampeg B15 uh, amplifier and a Fender bass. And I, um, I saw Alex, I saw the whole band actually just before Neil passed. I went down to see them at Neil's uh, place in Santa Monica. And uh, I said to, said to, to Getty, um, I said, you know, you guys kind of saved my life back then. Uh, you know, you really, you, you changed the trajectory of my life. And he said, I got to tell you something, caveman. This is Getty. He said, you did the same to me. He said, I had driven right by the exit sign. And that was his expression. I had driven right by the exit sign. And you're the one who brought me back to the fenders and back to the bases that I love and back to the, uh, back to the bass playing that I love. So I have to thank you for that. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it's what amazes me the most about that incredible story you just told is you just talked about how difficult it was for you at that time in your life. You had no money. You had to borrow money. If you didn't get that job, you, it sounds like you were a step from homelessness. But you get that job, and you have, as you call it, the gall to 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 hear to tell this legendary iconic band uh, even at that point in their career you know you're doing it all wrong and you know i i mean that's that's a that's a i would think a really important trait for someone who's going to become a successful producer as you have that you've got to stick to your guns and your belief in in what you want to get from these artists even i mean that's a huge risk for you at that point in your life because they could have said you know what get out of here man we don't we 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 we're rushed we don't need this from you and you could have been stuck exactly. sleeping on the flight attendant sofa again so so i have this ability to compartmentalize i find you know when i i don't listen to a guitar player like like, uh, you know, great guitar player, like many of the many I worked with and think that all these little pearls and nuggets that they drop are genius. So I always try and think about how they could be better. And, it, you know, sometimes it amazes me that I, because it, it's not goal, actually. It's something else. It's something in my job where I'm trying to, I'm trying to get somewhere in my job. And it's the same, you know, when I'm working with Zeppelin and, you know, you're doing stuff and, uh, it's only later that you come back, you come by to think about things. You know, I remember doing a mix of since I've been loving you for, for, uh, for, uh, I think it was how the West was won or something like that. And I listened, I took it out and I listened to it in the car on the way home and I thought, oh, I can do it better. And I came back in, I was doing it the next day and I, Jimmy came in and he was like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm remixing since I've been loving you. I think I'm doing better. And he went, well, it sounds fantastic to me. I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think it's time to move on. So there's something, it's not about, uh, I really, it's not, you know, I, I don't become a, a slave to any of this stuff. It's really like, I, 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 there's a drive in me for about music more than anything, you know. 
Yeah, no Did doubt. That makes sense. No, it totally does. It it really does. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Kevin, before we continue on the artists that you worked with, I'm curious about this. We know that your credit has always been Kevin Caveman Shirley. Uh, You mentioned uh, that a few artists called you Caveman. Where'd you get that nickname and why? Where'd it come from? Uh, You know, I was just, I was about 19 years old and I, I guess I was walking around bare chested with beads around my neck and I had long hair, much like I am now without as much belly up front. And, uh, Someone offered it up, and to be honest, I we used to used to call and make a, like make a dinner reservation, and I'd say, "Hey, it's Kevin Shirley," and then I'd get there, and they'd say, "Hey, Keith," and I'd go, "What the fuck did you get Keith from?" You know, <laughs> and so, and I, it, it's like one of those things where I never liked, I never wanted to be called. I mean, I, you know, I think Kevin was especially a nice name, but Keith was even worse for me. And then, so I, you know. I remember making a booking once at a restaurant, and uh, they said, "Who's the, res- the reservation for?" And it was caveman, and no, it was no pushback. There was just laughter, and I got there, and it was like, "Hey, it's caveman," and they're like, "Come on in," and we've got a great table, and I'm like, "You know what? This works. I'm just going to stick with it. This works just fine." <laughs> <laughs> so, so people took Keith from Kevin. That, that's that's yep. strange in and of itself, and he just went with it with Caveman and embraced it. You've certainly exactly. made it your thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there, go ahead. And then, and then down the line, there was another thing. You know, I and I and I'm very. You know, I know that producing and engineering are two entirely different skills, and they're they're you know they're not one and the same. There are uh, there are people that are engineers that produce records, but there's a you know, production to me is a whole lot different than engineering. And engineering, I find, you know, at the risk of wrinkling a few uh, foreheads, um, quite a simple job. 
there are fantastic microphones that people have been developing over a hundred years that do the job that they meant to do. They capture sound and the sounds that they capture on a good microphone are the sounds that are being created. So engineering really is about making sure you have a good sound that you put a microphone in front of. Obviously, it's a little more in that. Producing, on the other hand, is more about getting performances, getting attitudes, getting song structure, trying to define the emotion that's coming out of it, whether you want to make people angry, upset, uh, melancholy, happy. You know, you, there's, you, you said about creating something in music that's more than just uh, the notes and the tempo. And um, so I never wanted to be produced and engineered by because I never felt that's what I was doing. So it was always, if you don't look at it, and now I don't give a toss actually anymore, but I used to then, I used to put produced by Kevin Shirley, engineered by Kevin Caveman Shirley, and I used to put it in the contract so that they didn't amalgamate the credits. So I, I never liked that, you know, mixed and engineered by credits. So that was another reason why I hang on to it. Uh, of the process of making records, uh, engineering, mixing, producing, where 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 do, where does what order do those fall in for you? What do you like doing best? It it sounds like producing first and foremost, but with, with that, wh- how do, how does it all slot in for you when you're hired on a project? Because in your history, you have just engineered or mixed, and then of course you've also produced. So how does what's the criteria for you when you're approached about something as to what you will and won't do? Um. Uh, I think pr- producing is the most important part of it. Um, uh, as we spoke about in the previous segment, you know, Bob Tremountain is one of my all-time heroes, and he's one of the guys that I've definitely tried to emulate in terms of mixing style. He's the guy whose records always sound the best to me. And to that end, by the way, this is this is kind of interesting. I've just done the new Joe Bonamassa record, and we had a really interesting task because he, you know, we, we're we in Australia now and we got locked down and you have to have a travel waiver to leave and they've denied me twice to leave and the coronavirus thing made it very complicated to travel. So uh, Joe's new record, which comes out on October 29, uh, we talked about things and we set up a link between a studio in New York and it, my studio in Australia. Germano Studios in New York and my studio have the same uh, console and we set up the Zoom links and audio links running between the consoles, and then I would get up at two in the morning, and and um, and get with them in the studio, and it was actually fantastic, and it was not a lot different from being in a regular studio. Instead of having the glass between you, we had a screen between us, and it was just the same. And you could say, "I need, you know, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Can you try something else? I want you to do this," and it was instantaneous, you know, and. Um, and then by the end of the evening, when they were wrapping up, which was by 10 in the morning, they would, the engineer, they would shoot the files to me. And before they'd packed up their guitars and things, I'd have the entire session on my, on my system. So that was just totally amazing. But anyway, the, so, and, and this record is so cool, Eddie. You're going to love this record. It's so, I mean, it's my fa- one of my favorite I've ever done. But this is the new Joe Bonamassa one. Anyway, I, I did so much work on this record, and I did a lot of work here. I did, you know, a lot of overdubs in Australia, used Australian people, and and there's a reason to it. It wasn't just a matter of being in Australia, but the first song that came out on this is uh, a song about Joe's 
journey and his journey, the lyrics literally go, I've been all around the world, but I always come back to the blues. And I thought of this and I thought of this journey that he's undertaken and this journey that he's undertaken from being, you know, uh, literally a bar and blues guitar player to, you know, this global superstar that he is now playing, you know, six to 15,000 seats on a, on a nightly basis. I mean, he's a big, he's a big star for, you know, what's ostensibly a, you know, a blues guitar player. And, um, so I did a lot of work on this record and, you know, um, and I, I, I thought I want this record to be everything it can be. And so I approached Clear Mountains to mix it and he mixed it and absolutely loved the record. I mean, he loved the record and he did such a great job mixing it. And, uh, it's been, you know, it's fantastic. So yeah, so it, 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 that kind of should give you some idea of what I think. I mean, I think the producing is the most important. Yeah, I that, think mixing is. Th- that's you it. know, mixing is really. Yep. No, I, I was just going to. Oh, I was just going to say that's awesome. I mean, I, I'm super excited to hear it because I love Clear Mountain as well, and that also says a lot about you because obviously, uh, your 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 own history, your own resume at this point is that you can you can do it all and check all the boxes as, you, as you've done on many records, especially with, uh, with Joe. But to the fact that you, you stepped back and said, you know what, I'd like to hear what Bob would do with this record I produced and let's tr- go after him to get it is, is a really cool thing. Yeah. And you know, it was, it, it was challenging because <clears throat> I really, you know, I, I'm so involved in the making of these records and I'm so involved in, every little nuance, every little uh, skeleton that's on those records I know about. And so I get the mixes back from Bob and and the, but sometimes they weren't exactly what I was expecting. But um, and this is where I think a lot of people tend to learn a lot of stuff. You know, you have to trust that other people if you're going to hire someone to do something, you've got to let them do what they do. And, you know, if you're going to get an artist, you just don't tell them to change, you know, this thing to that thing. I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer in getting people to do what they do. And that, you know, applies to musicians, applies to artists, applies to mixing engineers. And so a couple of Bob's mixes I really had to live with. And so I trust that it's going to be okay. It's not how I would do. Um, yeah. Um, and there was a, there was a couple of songs that there was. In fact, there was basically one song that he didn't get for me, and I just said to him, you know, I think there might be a better version in there. Um, but other than that, you know, I just let him. And you know, Jimmy Page was the same to me. I mean, I remember. I mean, I I, I made. Five records with Jimmy in one in one shape or another, and and when and things like how the West was won and that DVD that we did, there were so many concerts from the Earl's Court uh, from uh, the Royal Albert Hall concert of '69 or '70, right through to Nebworth, which was you know uh, ten years later with the end of their career, and so I mixed so many different concerts and so many different things, and in all of that time. Jimmy never once asked me to do a remix. Never once. Of all of the things I did, and he, you know, he doesn't sit next to you while you're mixing. He's upstairs in another room or his company listens to what you've done, but he's not sitting there mixing with you. And, um, uh, 
And one day he came in and he said, I played him a mix. And by the way, it was a mix that I'd done really quickly because we'd had such uh, we'd had such issues with the console and something had gone wrong. And he came in and I only had about, you know, maybe less than an hour to mix the track. And I, I played him what I got. And he goes, oh, why did you mix it like that? And I sort of explained to him, you know, what I was doing. And he was like, went back and he listened to it again uh, in a different light. And he went, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. Okay, cool. Move on. And I thought that was, uh, you know, you learn a lot. You have to approach, I mean, sometimes you have to approach things from another person's point of view as well. You know, uh, and I know we're jumping around here, which is fine because it's great to get all this stuff. I, I want to go back to Bonamassa in a second. Of course, we got to get to Maiden in a, in a bit. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, one of the producers that I did this with very recently was Eddie Kramer, who, of course, worked on the early zeppelin records and engineered for jimmy page and and i asked eddie if he you know because he couldn't he can't speak more highly enough about jimmy page as a producer and i asked eddie if he had learned a lot from jimmy as his engineer and also when jimmy would be playing guitar then eddie would have to almost assume a co-producer role at, at those times and you know eddie couldn't speak more highly en enough about jimmy page and what he learned from him uh, just in working with him back then in the early seventies, late sixties, what was that experience like for you? Did you, I imagine same thing that even though you're working with him much later in his life and his career, that you get past the point of holy shit, this is Jimmy Page, and what can I what can I learn from this guy? What can I do for him, and what can I absorb back from him? I would imagine that's the relationship. Um. You know, it was a, it was a, I think it was a different kind of relationship, definitely, because we were always dealing with, you know, with stuff that had been done. And, um, and so I, you know, I was never in the room with Jimmy when he played guitar. And I, he, he, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because, uh, you know, he's my, he's my ultimate hero he's my ultimate idol i mean jimmy page was the, is is the guy he is the ultimate guitar hero for me i mean there wasn't anybody else and so you know to work with him for all those records was something else but um uh i didn't work with him really in that capacity you know i worked sort of in post-production on all of that stuff you know the closest i came was recording the the black crows and jimmy page at the greek theater and and that wasn't sanctioned. I had to sneak in and record that and pay for it myself in the in the beginning. And then, you know, at the end of the show, I took them a CD that they didn't know had to do the, the concert had been recorded. And I said, I recorded the concert. Here's the CD of the concert. If you want me to, uh, you know, fix this up, if there's anything you want to get out of this, then let me know. I, you know, I've got the tape. So, um, you know, at that point, they decided to make a record of it, of the of the of the live at the Greek show, and I was doing the Maiden Brave New World album at the time, and then I would come in on the weekends doing Brave New World or early in the morning and mix the Jimmy Page and the Crows live at the Greek, and, and so I did that remotely. And um, that's amazing, though, Kevin. Kevin, let me just stop you there real quickly, though. That's amazing to me, and I yeah. never knew that. You're saying that the Jimmy Page 
and the Black Crows live at the Greek, which is, of course, a, 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 a great record that I have it. Most people have it. You're telling me that that was done basically. You basically did that covertly? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Correct. And I was told it had to be covert because they wouldn't agree to it. And um, um, Pete Anzus, the manager, and I spoke about it before. So it wasn't that I, I did it without anyone knowing. Pete and I knew about it, but uh, but we weren't to let anyone know that was being done. So I actually had to pay for Limobile uh, Mobile Recording Studio. And they came out to the back of the Greek, and we ran feeds from the, from the, uh, from the stage into there. And then, you know, I did a live mix on the CD, which is what I gave them. And then they went and got this deal with the uh, with an internet company. I think they were called. Uh, I forget. I thought it was TVT. I thought it was originally. Yeah, I, I it came out on a couple it different was TVT labels afterwards. Okay, it came out. There was a small inter- internet label that came out. Or it was, it was the idea that I think they gave them the advance for the, the you know for the, the, the for the uh, for the recording. What was the name of the, of the company? But it went. They went under in no time, but basically they were going to be a streaming company in 2000, and they were a little bit premature, you know. Um, right. Uh, and then when that didn't happen, they sold it to TVP, and TVP put it out. Yeah, and it, it was a gold record. Yeah, an amazing record. And I just saw the Black Crows this past weekend, and uh, man, my gosh, they sounded so good. And I know, and you did a great record for the Black Crows that I that I love actually, the By Your Side record, which was. Um, you know, which was phenomenal. So, so I want to get, we got to get, uh, spend some time on Maiden, of course, here in a second. But before we do that, let's go back to Bonamassa, who you, you've basically been essentially his guy for a while now for his solo records. How, I, I know Joe very well, and I have a lot of respect for Joe as a person and a musician. And we talk often and, uh, I think what he does for the blues in general and just for musicians in general and his passion for what he does is his story starting out as a kid and, and, and everything is just remarkable. How did Joe get on your radar and what is the basis for the incredible bond you have with him? Is it deeper than just you're good at what you do and he's good at what he does? Yeah, it is. It goes back with me and Joe, it goes back to the beginning and um, and not to, uh, when I say to the beginning, I, I don't mean to the beginning. I mean what I call, you know, the Joe Joe 2.0. Uh, clearly, he had a career and he was doing fine. But I went to go and see him, and uh, his manager called me in 2004, 2005, something like that, early 2005. And and he said, you know, I've got this great uh, uh, blues guitar player. I'd like you to have a look at uh, uh, have a look at him. So. Uh, I wasn't honestly really interested, uh, and I can't tell you why. I was living in New York City. I was really busy, you know. I had so much going on, and um, and he 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 said he was playing up near Chicago. So I just started seeing this girl up there, and I thought, oh well, I might as well go up there. It gives me an excuse to go up there, a legitimate excuse. And so I went to go and see him. And when I went to see him, we went to a little club in St. Charles, Illinois. And um, and I thought he was very, very good guitar player. Um, but that's all I thought. And I didn't think there was much else there. And I went and had a conversation with him in, in his bus after the show. 
And I said, uh, you know, I think we could do something. I mean, I've always had people like Gary Moore, guitarists, so, you know, the thing that tied me, Brian May, Gary Moore, I mean, you know, that's what gets Jimmy Page, that's, that's what gets my, uh, my boat, you know, um, Richie Blackmore, all those guys that I grew up, the guitar players are, are the things, you know. So I thought, I said to him, if you, if you're prepared to think outside the box, I think that there's a long way we can go. And I said to him, I think that you would have to do a lot of things that you might not be sure of. But if you trust me, I, I won't let you down. And, 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 you know, I, I, you know, I need you to trust me. And so that was the basis of our relationship. It was this, 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 this affirmation of trust, you know, that we had. And he said, okay. And I said, go away and think about it and give me a call in a couple of days, see how you're feeling. So he went away for a couple of days and then he called me up and he said, all right, I think I'm, 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 you know, I think I'd like to. Uh, work with you, and I think I'd like to, to to take these challenges, you know. And so I said, well, the first thing that's important to me is, you know, I don't know that I want to use your band making a record, and and to be honest, I'm not sure that they're the strongest band for you live, and not because they were bad players, and I, and you know, but because I didn't think he he was clear, clearly a kind of a geeky, nerdy guy, and in order for him to be front and center on stage, I needed to have musicians of his caliber able to support him, not musicians of a slightly less caliber who are dominating the limelight. And and he wouldn't, at that stage of his career, push them aside. Now he will. Now he's a killer. I mean, he gets on stage and he's he doesn't uh, play second fiddle to anybody. I mean, put anyone up, up you know, on that stage with him. Um, and it's and it's a it's a war, and he wants to win it. So, you know, the only time I've seen him be really respectful in that regard was when Clapton came to play with him at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, and, I, I knew you were going to say that because he brought that up to me too. So I knew that's what, I had a feeling that's what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, but he just you know Eric played and Joe just Joe just uh, he was simpatico with him. You know, he played with him. He didn't try and kill him. But I've seen people come up to him and try and take the stage away from him and I've been on the stage and I'll see Joe will just look over at me and he just give a little like nod and then he goes okay I'm gonna go and fuck this guy up <laughs> and I see him walk to the front of the stage and he will do like a 15 minute guitar solo at that point which is he knows it's excessive but he will just destroy somebody I mean it, there's a there's a war that goes on there and I wouldn't like to be in the other guy's shoes when Joe gets that look <laughs> on his face, I can tell you. And but then, anyway, so and, he talks- Well, so the, the thing I was going to say that's interesting, too, is like now, of course, Joe himself is producing other artists. So I'm sure he, you know, he learned a lot from you during your, your history of producing his records. He, he, you know, he did. And look, look, I have to say, you know, there's, there are some things that are clear. I mean, I think... Uh, Joe has a passion that runs deep and he, you know, when he makes these records that he produces, he, he, it's like, it's like, that's his passion. That's like where he is at. And, 
And I think he enjoys that. I don't think he likes to be in the studio, though, you know. And so it's kind of weird to me that he does that, but I think that it drives him. I think he enjoys, you know, he just did a record with a guy called Larry McRae, and uh, he just feeds on that energy of those people in the studio that are just rootsy, honest musicians. Um, You know, my challenge for him is, my challenge for him and has always been is to push him into a discomfort. And I try to push him all the time because he is so skillful that his default setting is better than most people, you know, uh, pushing the boundaries. His default setting is so advanced. He can play everything. He can play country music. He can play metal. He can play anything he wants to put his mind to. He's just got the skill set that's second to none. Was, so well, when Ke- I'm in the studio... Well, I'm sorry, Kevin, yeah. but, but just to jump in on this, was the formation of Black Country Communion and putting a hard rock band around him part of that? Was that part of pushing him into an area that, that would be something different and challenge him in a different setting? Absolutely. I would say to people, have you heard this guy, Bonamassa? And I, you know, I, a few people embraced him. I played him to Jimmy Page in the beginning. I played him to Adrian Smith and the guys from Maiden, and they loved what they were hearing. But I would say to guys, have you heard this guy? And they'd say, what kind of music is it? And I'd say, it's blues. And they'd say, oh, well, I don't listen to blues. And, you know, this resurgence in blues is very much uh, a result of what Joe's been doing. I mean, he has led this resurgence in blues because it's become a much more, you know, inclusive genre than it used to be. And um, I knew that we had to get him on the cover of Classic Rock. That, as weird as it sounds, that was my goal with that band, was to get them on Classic Rock. And I, uh, I, I knew that if we could get that audience. So I had a, there was a couple of goals, and it, it, and it really is a is a bit more deliberate. I mean, I from the get go, I wanted to get. I would go and see these shows of shows, and it was always ninety five percent over fifty year old men, gray hair, you know, night off, uh, you know, from whatever they were doing. They come have a couple of beers and watch the blues. So I, you know, immediately, I wanted to bring women into the audience and i said you know i would say to joe every time a woman comes to the audience they bring a man this automatically doubles up your audience so we need to start doing that and so we did some songs this is where an example of where he has followed blindly but hating every minute we did the song called prisoner on one of his records which was a barbara streisand song and i said i think this is a great blues song i think this is a you know, a really great blues song. And he was like, man, I will never play the song live, but I'll do it. And he did it. And I can't tell you the amount of women that have said to me, this is my favorite Bonamassa song, the song Prisoner. And so these things started working, but we couldn't get the rock crowd. We just couldn't get the uh, respect of the rock crowd. And Black Country Communion was the first vehicle that allowed him to get that without changing his persona. He still goes on stage in a suit and, uh, you know, looks like something out of the Matrix. Um, <laughs> but, his, but his playing has become, you know, his, his playing is, 
it's, it's now embraced by all of these rock players. You know, they all of course, yeah. see what the guy's about and, you know, legitimize them in that community a lot. Yeah, no doubt. All right, let me get to before, because uh, there's so much more I want to ask you about and time is, you know, we probably have maybe 30 minutes total left here. But I got to ask you about and talk and spend some time talking about what my audience, no doubt, will be most interested in in terms of uh, your work. And because I have so many Maiden fans in my audience, and that is, of course, Iron Maiden. You have basically, uh, in a lot of people's view, become well. They've got six people in there already, so the seventh, <laughs> the seventh member of right. the band. Uh, but you started with Brave New World, the reunion record, back yeah. in '99. How did it come? To, you know, I think people look at Maiden. And their history, there's two phases. There's the early years, which Martin Birch was you. Uh, the late, great Martin Birch was uh, basically that guy that did all the Maiden records. And then ever since Brave New World, right through the new album, Senjutsu, uh, you are the guy for, for Maiden and, and, and certainly for Steve, including his British Lion stuff. So where did it start for you? How did you get so connected to Iron Maiden, Kevin? And how did that relationship begin? Well... So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a difficult one. And, uh, it's not quite that easy. Maiden, when I, when I came on board with Maiden, there was a definite lull happening in their career and it concerned me. And I could see that record sales had been sliding, chart positions had been sliding. And not that those are the most important things, but I could see that this was, you know, um, an older, older style band, older genre band that had somehow lost their way a little bit, and and I, I I wasn't convinced. I have to be honest, I wasn't convinced back then. And um, but I think I was the guy that was chosen because. So they were bringing back Adrian and they were bringing back Bruce. And I think the consensus amongst them was that they needed to have an outside guy oversee the whole thing. And so I think every one of them has such, such different tastes. You know, um, Adrian liked me from my work with, uh, with Aerosmith and Journey. Um, I think Bruce knew me from my work with Dream Theater. Uh, I think, uh, Davey didn't care. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's Davey. He's just, he just goes with everything. Um, I think uh, Steve knew me, funnily enough, from my work through Silverchair. Mm. And and so they, I, I picked a lot of boxes for each of them. Um, and I think that's how I got involved in all of that. And, uh, and, and you know, it's just, there was there was something that worked um, straight away. There's just the way that it, you know, the way that we work together and the way that we've evolved together has worked. And um, it's a different band than the band that was around in the Martin Birch days. And uh, you know, there I'm I, I'm so well aware of the you know that I have the detractors amongst the you know the audience that just wish for the days of Martin Birch. But they were, were a totally different band back there. And they were a different band in so many respects, and not the least of which is their songwriting. Um, and they do not write songs like that, like they used to write songs. Uh, I've asked Steve about that. Uh, and he goes, you know, 
I stand by all of those songs, but I could never write songs like that anymore because that's not where I am in my life. And, um, and so there's been this evolution, and it's been an evolution in songwriting, in, in, in the personalities, in the way that they work together, in, um, in the way that they accept each other. You know, I think in the, in the earlier days, the, the friction between Bruce and Steve was, was much, much more evident because Bruce is, you know, Bruce is very gifted and Steve is very gifted and, uh, and, and Steve's quite passive aggressive. He not passive aggressive. I mean, he, Steve has an idea and he doesn't let it go until the idea is done. And he might sing a melody one way or whistle a melody, which is what he likes to do. And then Bruce will adapt a, a melody a little bit. And Steve is like, no, that's not how it goes. This is the melody that I'm hearing for this thing. It goes like this, a brave new world, a brave new world. And then it, it, Bruce would, you know, as a singer, will riff on it. And then Steve's like, uh, that's not the melody of the song. So there's been a lot of, uh, forward movement in this band and acceptance of how we do things, how we work. And I think, you know, everyone getting older allows everyone the opportunity to breathe and to take in the other person's headspace before moving forward. Um, so it's a different band now, you know, and it's a, it, it's a, it, it, the studio is as much, if not more of a creative element in making these records than it used to be. And I think that sounds weird because they used to spend nine months making a record where we now spend, you know, um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a band like no other and it's a band that sounds like no other and it's a band that they don't want to sound like no other. I mean, I see, you know, I'm not oblivious to all of this online chatter. I'm not oblivious to all of the heavy metal producers that some people would prefer to see with them. But Maiden sounds different because Maiden are different. They don't want to sound like anybody else. They don't want to bend to uh, um, taste of the day and pressures of the taste of the day. And they make they make music for Iron Maiden. And they know that their fans will follow. And uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. You know, you know, Bruce alluded to a lot of what you're saying. I, I had Bruce on for the latest album, Senjutsu. We did over an hour on the air, and we spoke for a while, and we, we talked about you, and because actually it was a question from a member of the audience who asked about what the bond and connection Maiden has with you, that they, they use you on all these records consistently. And Bruce pretty much said that, it goes beyond obviously what you do as a producer that you're, you're kind of the guy that can, I guess for lack of a better term, I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but what I took from it is you're, you're the guy that can manage all the different personalities. You've got a band with six people in it right now. Everybody wants their song on the record. Everybody wants their performance a certain way that, that you're, you're the guy that can basically herd them all together and get them to create and record in, in a fashion that's productive. And I, that's obviously a big role uh, as a producer as well, I would think. Well, it's, and it's, you know, it's like, it's not a, it's not a role that I, that I uh, practice with any of the other bands that I do. Maiden is so unique in the way that they work. 
and in the way that they construct the songs and the way that they go about stuff. And and the guys do trust me, you know. They, they really do trust me in the studio. They leave me alone in the studio a lot. Um, uh, we'll get ideas and, you know, I'll say, look, I'm going to sort this out and, and they'll come back in the next day and, you know, there's a song that's, that's playing. And, it, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's an immense amount of work, I have to tell you. Absolutely immense. Um, well, well, Kevin, I would, Kevin, I would imagine, and I'm curious your take on this. I would imagine it's unbelievably daunting. And look, I know you've worked with Dream Theater and and done some stuff in the progressive rock space. But another thing that I talked to Bruce about very recently is the fact that Maiden has no doubt become a way more progressive band in recent years. And I mean, the last three songs on the new record alone are all Steve Harris. 10 minute plus compositions what's your take on that and as a producer are you ever the guy that has to say hey guys maybe this doesn't need to be 13 minutes can we you know can we can we do some editing here what what are your thoughts about the direction they've gone in as a band and really embraced more of a progressive thing with these double studio records and really long songs on most of the tracks you know my take on it is that Maiden is Maiden, and uh, and I don't think they're anybody else. I don't think that they're they're in the same you know genre as Metallica. I mean, I don't even see them as the same kind of thing. They're melodic, very uh, involved and integrated band, and um, I don't try and cut their sound down. I mean, my my job as a producer for Iron Maiden is to try and help them realize their vision. My job is not to try and create a hit single in an environment where things change every three months. This is not at all what, where I'm at. I'm about trying to capture Steve's vision, trying to capture the vision of, of the lot of them because they get together. I mean, they get together, you know, it's, there are, you know, it's difficult to describe how we work, but sometimes, like, they'll come in and Steve will play an idea and Nico will just bash along lightly on the drums and then they'll go, okay, that's the basis for the next song. And you have to have captured it and then you have to be able to turn it into something. And you go, this is, you know, this is, um, this is a crazy amount of of creative work that I've got to do ahead of me. But there's a vision that they have. And I'm not trying to make it difficult for them to get there. I'm trying to help them get there. So I don't go and try and cut the songs down. I don't try and cut the solos down. Sometimes I do it, you know, without anyone knowing. I'll cut out, you know, 32 <laughs> bars of solo and don't even know who um, <laughs> Suddenly, the fourteen-minute song became twelve minutes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I've done, I've done, I've done it. I'll say to them, "Do you think that solo should be shorter?" And they go, "No, no, it's cool." And the next day, they'll come and I'll play it to them with thirty-two bars, and no one even notices. And I'm going, "Well, that's fine." Then. <laughs> what, what's it like working? I know Steve has co-production credit uh, on the new record, and and some of the others with you. So, so talk about that because. I don't know if that's something that you've done a lot of in your career where you've had a band member as a co-producer. 
have you ever has it ever been difficult has it ever been like you know who has the final say here or disagreements where, where you've had to no. or or is it just more of a partnership and and you guys figure out a common ground you know it's, I, I really with maiden i don't have another goal in mind other than to try and represent them as they are coming out i mean i am not instrumental in changing them at all i'm not instrumental in in trying to make anything fit into a box all i'm trying to do is help them get their vision out and and that doesn't and i don't it doesn't make me a yes man it doesn't make me slave to other people's ideas what it means is that i have a very difficult task of trying to uh get these thought processes that they have and put them into music and it's you know without you know, being, without somebody sitting in the studio watching it happen and by the way which nobody does and not including the band um, it's a very complicated and tough thing to do and um, you know it's like it's like making Stephen Hawking speak you know uh, how did they do that I don't fucking know but it's it's you know it's uh, it's what I have to do I have to get this band to speak and and it's not me speaking, it's them speaking. It's just that we have to try and find a way to get it out there. And I've also under, you know, there's other things that I've learned along the way. Um, I've done in the past where, you know, a more uh, approach these recordings in a more traditional way where we'll do the tracking and then we'll set about mixing. And one of the things I realized early on is that they get so used to the way these things sound when we track them that even if I'm not totally sold in the direction that it's going in, that, um, that it's hard for them to change. And, uh, so I have learned that when I'm making a record with them, that at every stage of it, it needs to sound as close to where it's going to be when we finish. So I'm constantly mixing as well. Like from the get go, I'm constantly mixing. I'm constantly, um, getting a philosophy behind the songs, behind the approach to the songs, you know, approach to the mix. And like, for instance, on the new album, it's clear. And of course there've been enough comments that I've put most of the toms pretty much down the center of the record. But one of the things I noticed is if I want to hear the toms on the Nico, uh, you know, the Nico, Nico toms, which go, by the way, all, they go all the time. Like he, he just bangs shit nonstop. Um, if I'm to hear all these, all the nuances of these three guitar players, I need a, I need to have space in the sonic spectrum. I need to have space in the in the stereo spectrum. I need to have space in the sonic spectrum. And how do I do that and fit everything in there? And it's honestly, it's not an easy gig. And so before we did this record, I went to Nico and I said to me, "Look, I'm not going to put your thumbs in the in the traditional, you know, left to right panning thing for all of your eight or ten thumbs or whatever it is." I'm going to put them more down the middle and I'm really going to work to make so that each one sounds unique and, and identifiable. But I need to have more room so I can hear some of the nuances of the guitars. And of course, he's totally, um, he's totally uh, amenable to that. And so that's you know where these things come from. So these records are mixed from early on in the proceedings. These, you know, the drum sounds, the compression. I've also seen that Steve doesn't like math. Uh, he has, you know, 
he'll hear a mix and then he'll hear it back mastered and he goes, I don't have, I don't hear all the nuances that you got it in the mix in the mastered version. I'd prefer to go with the unmastered version. And for me, that's always been difficult because I always prefer, you know, that scene that goes on the record at the end with the mastering process. But I've learned that that's, you know, what the guys like to listen to and how they like to listen to it. And, and um, so, you know, I've had to develop the way I work to suit them as well. Right, right. You know, it's interesting you, you talk about Nico because Bruce also told me that he felt that Nico was the star of this record. Uh, I had talked about the performances across the record with Bruce, and he said for him, he thought Nico and his performance on the record was among the favorites he's ever done in the band. So that was interesting to hear that from Bruce. One of the interesting things about this record was, um, and I haven't heard anyone say anything about it, but just as we got to Paris, Nico hurt his wrist. I'm not even sure if he broke it, but it was like a significant damage that he did to his wrist. And so <laughs> he was feeling okay in the studio, but he did say he was feeling, you know, a bit gingerly about things. And he didn't play as hard as he normally did. And I know you can't hear that because oftentimes when drummers hit drums so hard, they choke the instruments and they don't let the natural tonality of the instrument come out and i think that a lot of that credit is to that you know that technique that he developed to overcome um that injury and it's funny that because that's happened to a couple of guys in 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 in, in music it happened to neil you know in rush where as he got older and he started finding he couldn't play so hard and so much that he changed his style and I think he even went to study with some kind of jazz drummer and really approached the kit entirely differently mm. and for him it was a much better result as well so you know I think maybe that's what uh, some of some of the uh, some of the control that there is on the record in Nico that sometimes there's not you know because he really he's so full of abandon and he's such a a wonderful spirit and he just plays and plays and plays, you know, and things go all over and time moves up and down and things get hit all over the place. And I think maybe this injury kind of restricted that a little bit and maybe it was for the better. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Obviously, Kevin, there's so many things we could talk about. We could do this forever in the last remaining minutes that I have here. I'd like to get a few thoughts from you uh, briefly on, on some of these other artists that you worked with and your, you know, a story or a remembrance or an observation about working with them. This one might uh, be a, a bit out of left field for you, but it's an artist that I'm a huge fan of. And you actually, uh, I guess, maybe engineered what was his last ever real record. And I'm talking about Billy Squire. You worked on his last uh -huh. full-on rock record, a record called Tell the Truth. I like a lot of stuff on that. Did you mix or engineer that? What did you do exactly? Yeah, I mixed and engineered that. Um, uh, that was a while back, wasn't it? Wow. Yeah, uh, probably twenty five like years at least. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you work uh, at all with Billy? Did you have any uh, interaction with him oh, yeah. during it? Yeah, we worked in the studio together. Um, we were all in the studio together making that record. We went up and down. Um, not the happiest memory of uh, my career, to be honest. Uh, I was, you know, living in New York at the time as part of my broke time. And, 
And, you know, Billy had a lot of money. And so, you know, he was happy to go up and climb Mount Everest and have surface carry his amplifiers to the top of Mount Everest in the middle of making a record that I was like at $5,000 for. And, uh, you know, and that so it was, a, it was a tough record to make. It wasn't uh, the funnest record, I didn't think. Uh, tough time in his career, yeah, too. I, I mean, his, his career was pretty much winding down, and he was still trying to recover from – you know some of the previous, you know the previous video and 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 somewhat of a backlash yeah. to his career, but uh, I, I that was pretty much the end. I mean that was pretty much the end of him making uh, making rock records, and he's he's pretty much been retired well, ever know, since. To my understanding, uh, he had he had done this big this big uh, this big deal with the uh, I guess it was Bruce Lundell at the time. He did this big deal with him, and Billy got like you know. A million or more per record. I mean, he got a lot of money for it. Then he yeah. had to pay for the record, and all of the uh, all of the record company hierarchy had moved on while his deal stayed in place. And you know, he wasn't. I have you know, Billy had pleasant days and he had unpleasant days. And you know, by the time the record came around, the, the label wasn't interested in it. They knew they had to. They, they knew they had to put it out, but they didn't care much beyond that. And yeah. you know, it's, uh, yeah. It, I mean, not, not the, that's not the best story we've told all day. Is it? No, no, but it's <laughs> interesting. But it's, it all puts it in perspective because it's what he was going on in his career as well at the time. It's just I've always been a fan of his work, and uh, I was just curious your thoughts on that period. Let me ask you about Journey because you did quite okay. a bit with Journey. Actually, uh, tell me yeah, about tell me about working with them. And I'm I'm not entirely sure on the discography did you ever do a record when steve perry was singing i did two records with steve perry i did trial by fire okay and then uh and then that one we were in the studio in san francisco for that was the coming together again that was interesting record to make because um i'd been a huge fan of jonathan kane and neil as well uh individually they'd produced that uh, jimmy barnes record called um Great Pain Heart, which I loved the record. I thought it was fantastic. Neil played great on it. I think Jonathan produced it. And so I was in awe of those guys as producers, let alone musicians. I did not know Journey music very well. I mean, I knew Wheel in the Sky, and that was about it. So, you know, when I came to them, I did my research, and then we came into the studio, and, and they had done some demos, and I wasn't convinced that they were the same band that they had been obviously i went back and you know did listen to all the old records and and uh I, we went into pre-production we i think we were supposed to go into pre-production for two weeks and i had them stay for six weeks and steve perry was getting really mad at me by the end of it but i was sitting in a chair in front of the small stage at their rehearsal facility in oakland california and for six weeks, I made them play the record as we were going to record it because it was all done with drum machines. Steve Smith had just come back, and he hadn't been in the band for a while. I guess maybe Larry London played on the previous record or something like that. Um, anyway, we would get to the studio. We made a record with them. It was fantastic. I mean, we had a great time. We worked in at the, a studio called The Site in, uh, in, in San Francisco, and, you know... That record was cut on the floor. We had one hit single on there called uh, When You Love a Woman, which band cut in one take. I mean, guitar solo, everything cut in one take. It was just, you know, unheard of. And 
and we had a certain a special magic going on. And then, and then I did a live record with them. To, to uh, Steve had some issues with his hip or something like that, and um, we had to do a live record in order to satisfy the contractual um, obligation they had with Columbia. So we did uh, greatest hits live over the phone. I was in New York and. They were in L.A., and we had about a week to do that record. And then Steve left, and uh, Steve or Jerry came in and, and sang on, on, I think, Arrival, was the record that I produced for them. And then he had some sort of mishap live, and he was out the band. And then Jeff Soto was in for a minute. I didn't work with him. They didn't do a record. And then Arnell, Neil found Arnell on YouTube singing in a cover band in the Philippines and uh, then I did a Revelation with Arnell which was really uh, the first record I did with him and that was that was hard work because you know he was a Filipino with a Filipino accent and I you know this was an all American band and he had to sound like he was you know he actually he had to sound like he was American I don't mean to be uh you know anything? I mean, that band is just the all-American band. Sure, of course. And um, and and you know, all, you, we couldn't have all this. Uh, these, uh, I, I, I mean, I suppose you could have, but I didn't want to have this accent in the band. And so we worked really hard on it with Arnell. And then uh, I did another record with them, which uh, Neil hijacked for me. Um, uh, they called me and said, "Can you do this next record?" Which I forget what it was called now. Maybe I forget what it was called. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm in the middle of something else, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can go up to San Francisco. I can spend, I think, three weeks with them, and then I have to do this other project, and I can come back in September and finish this and, and finish this record. So I went up, and we actually did a lot in that first three-week period. I think we cut, like, the basics for 12 songs and finished about five of them or six. We did a lot more work than we were, than we were, just, we were meant to do. And then I went to do my next job. And for whatever reason, Neil, uh, who I love, by the way, um, but Neil was like, you know, fuck him. He left this record half finished when it wasn't the story at all. And he decided to take it on and he uh, finished the production on it, which I think he did kind of averagely on adding guitar solos to everything. doesn't make a great record. Kevin, <laughs> uh, yeah, let, me, let me ask you... Uh, just a few a few minutes left. I I cannot uh, not get something from you on another of my all time favorite bands for sure here, and that is Aerosmith. I know the Nine Lives record you did. Tell tell me about the experience working with that band, which you know I know those guys, and I know that in talking to many that that's like herding cats at times as well. I don't know what it was like for you, but how did you find the experience working with Aerosmith? Well, it was a, it it was it was tough. I mean, it was tough because they'd already made the record with Glenn Ballard. And, and, uh, and you know, I think as, when they started making that record, Stephen wanted to make a record. He was so enamored with Alanis Morissette's uh, was Jagged Little Pill yeah. record that he wanted to, to make a record along those same lines. And so he had Glenn Ballard do it. And, and, um, That's not Aerosmith. He, he has a and that's not Aerosmith, and he also has a permanent rub with, you know, Stephen rubs people up. I mean, he's just, that's he's just his nature. You know, he rubs the managers up. They would call me in the morning and say, which Stephen is in today? Is he happy? Is he sad? Is he like, you know, 
And, um, you know, me and Steven had some, some big Barneys in the studio. Um, but, uh, you know, they, when Col- Columbia just signed them over from Geffen, they'd just taken them back and they paid a lot of money for them. And I think they pretty much spent about $2 million on the record anyway. And, um, and then they gave the record to Columbia and, uh, Donnie Ina, uh, uh, James Dina, all the guys that were at Columbia at the time, none of them thought the record sounded like Aerosmith. And, uh, and, uh, so they called me. I went to have a meeting with them in Boston. We went up to the Four Seasons in Boston and had a meeting with them all. I was like the court martial. I was sat in the, in the ballroom in the Four Seasons and, uh, in the, in the firing squad chair and then around them were the <laughs> managers and the lawyers and the band and they all sat in a semicircle around me firing questions at me and it was like man and then we went to the studio and the idea was well we were just going to put some we were just gonna put, we, the idea was just to put some you know electric guitars on the songs that had already been done and uh, and it just morphed into that. I mean, I went and did pre-production at Joey Kramer's house with them, and they were above his garage. And I thought they were absolutely average as a band went during in, in pre-production. I thought, you know, I thought this isn't the mighty Aerosmith. And then we got into the studio, and after we'd done pre-production, we'd worked on some arrangements and some changes. And the first day, Stephen decided not to come in, and I, I guess this was like a. You know, it's like a pissing competition. Stephen decided not to come in. So I said, well, you know, we're going to cut a track. So we cut Falling in Love with Heart on the Knees on that day. And um, Stephen came in the next day and he was fucking furious. He was like, how dare you cut a song without me? I am fucking Aerosmith. How dare you cut a song? And I said to him, well, listen, man, my job is to make a record. And if you're not here, I'm going to make a record if you're not here or if you are here. So that's just the way it's going to go. And we had a few other things like that in the studio. And, uh, and that's how, you know, that's how we started off. We got a record done. Um, and I loved it. You know, I loved it. And there were times that we were working with Stephen where it was just amazing. The best times were, you know, when, uh, when it would just be the two of us in the room. And that would be amazing. We started, we did a song called, full circle on that record and I had wanted the chorus to be this kind of like drunken sea shanty um, it had that kind of melodic vibe about it and so we got into the studio and I was saying to, we were doing the backing vocals and I said to Stephen do, do one chorus and sound like Bob Dylan and then why, why don't you be uh, why don't you be Joni Mitchell on this one and so we because you know when you stack a person's voice singing over and over it just sounds you get this generic kind of you know, Bon Jovi kind of vocal sound. And uh, I wanted it to sound like this drunken, shambolic pirate crew. And I would go like, you know, now be a, like a throaty French whore and this and that with an accent. <laughs> so, so he would do all of these things. And we had the most fun. And uh, if you listen to the lyric, if you go back and listen to the song now, you'll hear um, the song, the, the lyric is... Uh, Time done, let it slip away. Straight raise your drinking glass. We got hell to pay. Time done, don't piss heaven off. Is um, is one of the lyrics. I think the second part of the chorus. If you listen, you'll hear him singing there. 
um, don't piss Kevin off. <laughs> well, that might be a good place to end because we're out of time anyway, and that could be the moral of the whole story. Don't piss Kevin <laughs> off if you're going to work with Kevin Shirley as a producer. Uh, Kevin, I got like two minutes left before I have to end the show. What would you like to say as far as anything you're working on now, anything you'd like to promote, anything you'd like to tell the audience in the, in the last couple minutes we have? Um, I just, uh, you know, I'm so excited about this new Joe Bonner record, uh, Joe Bonner Master record, uh, called Time Clock. And it's, it's fantastic. You're going to really love it. I, Hugh Simon did all the artwork. It's got a huge package. It's got like individual artwork for each song. So it's a fantastic package. And it's just, it's one of those records that I am so proud of. And, I think it's going to be a game changer for him. I think it's going to, I mean, this is the Pink Floyd of his career. You know, this is the, the wall of his career. This is, a, this is a big record. And I'm hoping he takes it out and, and does a wonderful stage show with it. It's all about songs, but the performances are sublime on it too. It's just really great. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. And I'm sure I'll have Joe on when he's ready to talk about it and promote it. Maybe we can tie you in again at that point as well. Uh, Kevin, I, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with the time, and I hope uh, there in Australia things begin to loosen up a little bit, and around the world for that matter, and that we can all see each other in person and uh, get to do the things that we all did so freely before. And I wish you nothing but the best. I really thank you for doing this. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Eddie. Thanks for having me on, and uh, hope to see you in person soon. Have a beer. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, thanks for all the great stories and, and all the great bands and all the great music that you worked on and look forward to hearing what's coming down the pike. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Shirley. Appreciate him taking the time. Next one up on the Producer Spotlight series will be Michael Wagner. I'll get that out to you as a podcast in a few weeks, but if you're a SiriusXM subscriber, you can hear it right now exclusively on the SiriusXM app. As always, follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, and I will see you next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, free as always, wherever you get your podcasts. Take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.